World War II, America continued to loom large in the minds of our English cousins, whom we defended during the war years. Opinions were divided. Some of the English thought we were naive, rude, materialistic, and crass. Others thought we were generous and friendly, hardworking and strong. Of course, to this day, we remain a bit of both. America's presence as a major power could be felt everywhere in British society and our culture was impacting many parts of English life. In the news, in the movies, even in the Americanisms, slang, that formed a big part of the vocabulary of British youth. Phrases like, yeah, yeah, yeah. By 1960, the English novelist Kingsley Amos was able to say that the, quote, largely mistaken and dangerous state of British attitudes towards the U.S. were commonly anti-American, End quote. Although we'd wanted to stay isolated before each world war, in actuality, those wars catapulted America to a position of global dominance, economically and militarily. We were the leaders of the free world. Negative British attitudes about America stemmed from envy and a dislike for how we suddenly were poking our noses into everyone's business. I remember when I was in my early 20s on a trip through England, having a conversation with a guy I met in a youth hostel. I'd naively mentioned that America had come to save England during those years, and I'd meant it in the way that I'd been taught it in school. America was a friend to England. I was surprised when the backpacker I was talking with shot back with a remark about how arrogant my statement was and how America ought to get the hell out of Western Europe once and for all. At the same time that America was ascending to this new most powerful nation status, England had lost its global empire, and it was pretty humiliating to the average Brit. The UK's rebellious son was in full bloom, just as the Union Jack was being draped on the coffin of old Imperial Britain. An anti-American vibe grew out of British envy. Used to being number one, England had been lapped by their former colonies. On top of that, this was the era of the Cold War, and that brought a lot of new pressures to Western Europe. It didn't help much that America had such a heavy hand in influencing British foreign policy in those years either. Pressure makes even the closest of friends quarrel. Welcome to American Songs Season 2, Episode 8. 
American music ushers in a changing of the British guard. England was caught between two cultures, the old order and whatever came after it. The rigid class distinctions between upper and middle classes were disappearing, and government reforms had a lot to do with it. The Conservative Party, with their slogan, Set the People Free, won the 1951 election, and popular culture began to replace stuffy, upper-crust stuff like classical music, opera, theater, and fine art with mass-market media like radio and movies and TV. Jazz and rockabilly music was the music the kids were dancing to in the clubs and music halls in England in those days. Some old-time theaters were torn down, totally. However it was happening, the new music pushed out the older audiences and made way for a new, younger audience. Fashion, I think, was the biggest leader, other than pop music. In this country, anyway, when fashion first started to figure largely in teenagers' lives, the pop music of this country was very watery and weak and not really worth talking about. People like Cliff Richard, people like this. And fashion was the first thing, and just aggression from people, you know. And kids, you know, just sort of fighting and things like that. And uh, United States of America was the leader for, for everything in England, you know. We used to look to the States for everything, for our fashions and for our music. And uh, then all of a sudden, you know, England's fashions and England's sort of directions all sort of started to close in so that the kids in England were, were thinking for themselves, you know, you know, and they were beginning to sort of uh, build up their own ideas about fashion and build up their own ideas about music. And instead of copying and doing everything from the States. And the first thing that really figured, I think, was the Beatles' influence, you know, which I remember as a big lift in this country when the Beatles arrived, you know, with their sound and their image and everything. And... Uh, from then on, a, a thousand different sort of things arose. Fashion, the mod fashion thing in England arose, which was very, very big, you know, and it's only just beginning to die out now. Uh, the group, English group music thing also arose, where groups not only were performing their own stuff compact on the stage, they didn't need anyone else, they just had the four blokes with their amplifiers, guitars, and they could do the lot. They had... Uh, they also wrote their own material, you know, which was a sort of a, a new thing altogether, you know. <laughs> there was then an audience for sort of original groups, you see, because the pattern had been set by the Beatles, and then you could vary from there, you know. And also, at the same time, there was this vast impact of teenagers un unifying into this big mass, which people call mods, you know. And, uh, you know, sort of all becoming one sort of unified force, you know, all going for something new, you know. As the decade went on, British youth increasingly questioned and made fun of all the vestiges of pre-war culture. Stuffy classical music was out. When TV was deregulated in 1954, the doors were thrown wide open to usher in American pop culture. In fact, the number one show on English TV in the 1950s was Wagon Train. 
English kids were being seduced by the rhythm and forward thrust of American entertainment with movies like Blackboard Jungle. That's the movie where Rock Around the Clock was heard for the first time. Elvis and Bill Haley in the Comets. Both of these bands were major influences on those four guys from Liverpool, England. In episode 13 of season one in the American Song Podcast, I told the story of the birth of rock and roll. Just like Muddy Waters sings it here on this song, the blues had a baby and they named it rock and roll. But English access to America's music was, at first, restricted. Blues and rock came into jolly old England through its ports and the underground. After World War II, England remained connected to the U.S. via the shipping fleets. In the 1950s, Liverpool was still a bombed-out wreck, victim of the Nazi Blitzkrieg. Leaving Liverpool and going to places like New York was like the scene in The Wizard of Oz where suddenly everything goes technicolor. In those post-war years, the Brits discovered American blues records, and they loved them. The Cunard ships connecting America to England were the chief pipeline of American blues and rock and roll to Britain until the late 1950s. It was like a chemical reaction. The English youth had a deep respect for real, authentic American blues music. England's baby boom youth were desperate to cut loose from England's traditional values. American teen rebellion, like rock and roll, American slang, jeans, teen movies, was the powder keg that drove the explosion of teen culture and the rise of English bands and the English mods and rockers. In those days, Liverpool was the most important seaport, and the forbidden rock and roll fruit came through in small numbers, hand-carried by English and American sailors nicknamed Cunard Yanks. One true case in point is a story of 
Ivan Haywood, who had happened to buy a black Gretsch guitar in New York in 1957, only to sell the guitar again when he met up with his 14-year-old schoolmate, George Harrison. As Haywood put it, I told him I wanted 90 pounds for it, but George said he only had 70. George bought the guitar on that condition, so I told him to write an IOU on the back of the customs receipt, because I knew he'd need that if he ever took the guitar abroad. He signed it G. Harrison, and he played that guitar through his career. It's the one he was holding on the cover of his Cloud Nine album. George never did come back with the 20 pounds. Do you think maybe he couldn't afford it? The influence of um, American music uh, was, was felt in Liverpool more so than other cities, I think, because of the connection straight, straight across the water to New York, more or less, wasn't it? From Liverpool straight across and you were in the States on the eastern seaboard, so anything that happened there came to Liverpool and then the rest of the country afterwards. You know, it's that thing where the kids know about something that the grown-ups don't know about. And that gives it a totally magic air. <laughs> and uh, you were getting, like, friends who'd have blues records and stuff in Liverpool, being a seaport a lot. I think you'd get a lot of imports and C&W and blues. There was a lot of that knocking around. Chuck Berry and What Did I Say and uh, Ray Charles, What Did I Say and stuff like that. I loved Elvis, you know, he was my boy. He was the lad. And Little Richard was the other. I had um, a cousin who was a seaman. And he used to bring all the all the you know brand new records home from America. This is when rock and roll was starting. No, that was the norm because most of those seamen that went uh, to America, don't forget, they were doing it every two weeks. All the stewards. I think how many people on board those ships? You know, and we used to call them Cunard Yanks because they used to come back. How much is that in dollars? You know, they had American accents and smoking uh, American cigarettes, drinking American booze. And they brought loads of stuff back from the States. So, no, I think it was normal in Liverpool. That's why it was a centre for country music, if you like, later on. Getting the music on English radio was an uphill climb. Instead, it became kind of an underground movement. Most people first heard these great blues and early rock and roll records at their favourite hangouts, coming out of a jukebox. Think about this. At the end of World War II... In 1945, there were a couple of hundred jukeboxes around England. But by 1958, that number had mushroomed to an estimated 13,000. You see, the BBC believed that they had a responsibility to the nation to hold up the pre-war idea of respectability, or at least not broadcast music that could threaten the morality of England's youth. It was a lot like the U.S. stations refused to broadcast black music in the 1920s and 30s. More than that, they believed that they claimed a responsibility to inform and educate the public in what it perceived as, quote, good music. The BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, were like George Orwell's thought police in 1984. Forces of darkness and the treasonable maggots who collaborate with them must, can, and will be wiped from the 
the face of the earth. We must crush them. We must smash them. We must stamp them out. We, the people of Oceania, and our traditional allies, the people of Eurasia, will not rest until a final victory has been achieved. Death to the eternal enemy of Oceania. Along with the BBC, England's music publishers and talent managers also had great control on the music that was available in England. Like New York's Tin Pan Alley or Brill Building, London also had its own talented songwriters concentrated in one part of town called Denmark Street. Got myself a crying, talking, sleeping, walking, living dog. Got to do my best to please her Just cause she's a living doll Got her over an eye and that is why She satisfies my soul Got the one and only walking, talking, living doll The talent managers there created and molded a set of Elvis and Buddy Holly imitators, including guys like Tommy Steele, Cliff Richard, Adam Faith, and Billy Fury. Not a threatening or divisive one in the lot. The Cunyard Yanks brought English music back to America, too, including this song by Cliff Richard and the Shadows called Living Doll. 1958. This is how music from newer British bands trickled into the United States in the several years before the full-fledged British invasion of the mid-1960s. The Cunard Yanks were priming a water pump that pretty soon became a flood as massive American demand for British music surged in the early 1960s. Pirate radio companies found a way around the BBC stranglehold of the airwaves by broadcasting into England from ships off the coast. From the 1920s through the mid-1960s, the BBC was the sole broadcaster in England. The government decided that radio was too influential as a means of mass communication to be in private hands, and rock and roll was officially banned from any airplay on English airwaves. But baby boom era England was not going to stand for that, and a number of enterprising people saw a business opportunity in the making. The first was a guy named Ronan O'Rahilly, who saw in the small print that the English government's jurisdiction only extended three miles into the ocean. Not only that, 
but stations from neighboring countries already had placed so-called pirate radio ships off the English coast. So, O'Rahilly got himself a 63-ton Danish passenger ferry, and he named it after JFK's daughter, Caroline. He plunked it down in the North Sea, just off Frinton, Essex, and he hired a crew of DJs to literally play rock music around the clock. Their first broadcast was on Easter Sunday, truly a miraculous day. Their first song, the Rolling Stones single, It's All Over Now, well, you gotta love the not-so-subtle messaging, don't you? By playing non-stop current pop in a situation where this had never been before available, Caroline had, within months, a larger audience than all of the BBC stations combined. Here's a recording of Radio Caroline and its DJ, Tony Blackburn, in 1965. You're tuned to Radio Caroline on 199, home of the good guys. It's now exactly 8 o'clock, Boulevard Watch Time. B-U-L-O-V-A, Boulevard, the world's largest makers of quality Swiss watches. Yes, indeed. Good morning, everyone. Tony Blackburn here with you. Feeling a little under the weather this morning. We've got a about an eight-force gale out there blowing, so I'm strapped in the seat this morning, hoping that you're going to enjoy all the music. This is number one in the countdown this week from the Spencer Davis group. It's called Keep On Running. Keep on running. It's past 8 o'clock, and that was the Spencer Davis crew. Keep on running. I don't know about being on a medium wave. We're on a very rough wave this morning. Never mind. I hope you're all feeling fit and well. The Tony Blackburn Show from Radio Caroline South. And just think, if a Polish woman married Batman, she'd be a bat pole. Uh, how's the breakfast going this morning? Let me see. What do you got there? Boiled eggs, tea, uh, toast? Uh, there is something missing. I know what it is. Square meal nourishment. That's what you get with pizza fix. A Weetabix breakfast gives them more than most cereals because Weetabix is the whole wheat breakfast, the protein and energy breakfast. Weetabix and milk, so easy to have, so good in its square meal nourishment. Start the day with Weetabix, Weetabix for breakfast. Oh, I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it. How come we got none of it on the ship? Come on, anybody listening from Weetabix there? I want you to send some out to us. It's 16 and a half past eight. Hey.
In this episode, we've been talking about England, the impact that American music had on British youth, and British culture. As we'll see in the next episode of American Song, an incredible period of English music was about to burst on the scene. I hope you'll join us for it. And as always, if you're as interested as I am in everything that was happening in and around this music, you can always visit the American Song podcast page on Facebook. All the sources for this and other episodes can be found there. And one more note. The new bumper music that you've heard a few times in this episode was composed by my lifelong friend, fellow adventurer in music, and gifted musician and songwriter, Mark Davis. You can learn more about Mark and his music at towakeyou.com. T-O-W-A-K-E-Y-O-U dot com. I'll see you next time around, and thanks for listening. This has been Joe Hines.
George is turned the singer. George is going to give out what I know. Remember, you all know so well. Great favor of yours. Why is it, George? Oh, that's George. What are you doing, George? 